0: The great thing about using history or even civics is that just like science, we're inquiry-based, we're working on literacy because we're reading, we're interpreting photographs, and then we're able to apply that to what we're doing in science.
1: Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. This is Annalise Corbin, Chief Goddess of the PASS Foundation and your host. We hear frequently, So, welcome back to Learning Unboxed. Uh, Very excited as always. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about the work of presidential libraries and K-12 education and public outreach and engagement and a lot of um, social studies and language arts. But we're also going to get into the deep weeds as it relates to um, how all that ties back into STEM and STEM education. And so joining me today um, is Elizabeth Denschel and Christine Bullock. Um, We are very excited to have you both. So just as a point of background, Elizabeth Dentschel is a historian working as an archivist and education specialist for the National Archives, and she is actively involved with engaging children with history through National History Day and archival research and leads professional development for teachers across the country. She is also a big advocate for cross-curricular development to bridge STEM education with social sciences, which is near and dear to my heart. So welcome, Elizabeth.
0: Thank you for having me. And joining
1: Elizabeth is Christine Bullock. And Christine is the Southeast Regional STEM Manager a lot of words, (laughs) for the Governor's STEM Advisory Council located at the University of Iowa and Corkwood Community College. And in her role, she develops, promotes, and implements, and maintains a seamless collaboration between other STEM regions, um, K-12 teachers, administrators, and post-secondary institutions and those business and industry partners along the way. So, Christine, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So I want to just dig right in and and really sort of start for lots of our listeners. This is the first time, uh, just to sort of set some context, that we've actually had the opportunity to have a conversation about the role of presidential libraries. And I think that's extremely apropos, as we've just had, um, you know, a a, a whole um, presidential process in the United States. And one of the things that comes from from lots of the work of these presidential libraries, but I don't think very many people really understand, Elizabeth, exactly what that is. What does it do? What's it meant to do, um, you know, over long, long periods of time? And and how how does that all work with the National Archives piece? So set the stage for folks.
0: All right. So now we officially have 15 presidential libraries. The um, Trump library has gone live online from Hoover until now Trump. There are these presidential libraries that come out of each um each presidency. And because of the Nixon presidency, there is the Presidential um, Records Act, which means the National Archives takes um, control over all the presidential records that are created. Before Nixon, presidents could decide what papers went into their archives. So like half of Hoover's papers are with us, half of them are at Stanford University. And then a lot of them were probably called and curated by Hoover um, and his staff. So we might not ever have a complete view of what his presidency was like. Um, But we do have a responsibility as the National Archives to maintain these papers. The libraries are built by private presidential foundations, and then they are gifted to the American public. They're required to have endowments now. And the National Archives actually only controls about 10,000 square feet of the presidential library. So those huge ones you see are mostly funded by presidential foundations that are private.
1: That's amazing context for folks, because again, I think a lot of people don't really sort of realize what they are and how they function, or even the fact that the Hoover Library was the first one. So I, I don't think a lot of folks even really understand that. So thank you for that. Yeah. So Christine, help us understand <laughs> your work in Iowa and how that then translates to Elizabeth's work with the, the, the Presidential Library and the National Archives and how it is that you two came together to do some work.
2: Yes, yeah, so the Iowa Governors Sim Advisory Council was started in 2011. When, like many phases of our history, there's been a big push that we have this pipeline that we need to build of students that are interested in science, technology, engineering, and math careers. But in order to get them to that point, we really need to prepare them at a very early age and foster that preparation, continuing through high school and post-secondary. So with the formation of the Iowa STEM Council, there were then six regions that were established to carry out the goals of the council, which are really to provide programming for pre-K through 12 students to strengthen um, their interest and achievement in STEM, both in school and out of school, but then also to build partnerships with businesses and organizations in our community. So we know that one of the barriers that we've had with STEM, and especially keeping students interested in STEM, is seeing that real connection to what I'm learning in the classroom, how does it translate to outside of the classroom, and for educators and businesses and organizations to be speaking the same language about what students should be learning, how it can be contextualized in an educational setting so that then students are well-prepared when they go out of that setting. So partnerships with Elizabeth started through just a a lot of brainstorming, you know, a lot of people networking together about different STEM careers, and it came up that Elizabeth had all of this great knowledge about Hoover's career as being a STEMist himself, as well as his wife, Lou Henry, and he came to realize that the library was really trying to showcase not just what he was as a president, but really what he contributed to society through his work in engineering and um, some of the work that he did to you know help feed the world through some of his, his um, knowledge and um, skills as well. And then we also learned about his wife, which with, for young women, that's a great inspiration that there was, you know, women in STEM is not something that's new, but that we need to continue to foster. So we've partnered on events, community STEM festivals that draw in thousands of students, Local events for, for example, robotics programs that are in and around the museum and grants that the museum does for that, that Elizabeth will probably discuss further detail later. But really seeing that, you know, work with STEM can't just be done in a silo. And so really trying to foster those partnerships that grab students at different points, whether they be in school or out of school in different age points. And um, the library just had a lot of those great resources that we wanted to help connect to and, and promote.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I think that um, there's there's so many opportunities tied with the career and the influence. You know, Hoover was involved in a lot of things, and I think you know Elizabeth back back to my my question earlier that folks don't necessarily even understand fully what the presidential libraries represent, but I suspect that many folks don't have a real clue other than at the most high level sort of. The ins and outs are all the things or the influences, um, if you will, that Hoover was involved with that lend themselves so beautifully to STEM. So the engineering alone and and this, this, you know, a giant man-made, I want to say monstrosity, but it's not, right? It's this amazing thing, right? This this dam that that bears his name that lends itself as a tangible um, sort of applied point of contact for students for context around some of the things you're talking about. So, so share with us just a little bit, Elizabeth, before we sort of dig into the, the weeds, if you will, of some of the work that the two of you are doing specifically right now together, uh, sort of about how you utilize or, or for yourself in your work. Where did you sort of come to, hey, I have this great opportunity. If we could build out some partnerships, we could expand on this.
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, so I came to the Hoover Library almost eight years ago. And I went through a tour with our director, uh, Tom Schwartz, and he was telling me about Hoover's life um, and being one of the first graduates of Stanford University with a degree in geology and Lou Henry Hoover being the first woman to get a degree in geology from Stanford University. And this really successful engineering career where he was mining for silver in China and Australia, and it led him to become a multimillionaire. And he abandoned that career so that he could be a humanitarian and feed the world. But it was very quickly that the government kind of realized that he was this logistics, just genius and really good at engineering. And he was appointed secretary of commerce where he served through three presidencies. It is a really important time in American history because technology is changing. We're getting electricity, radio, television, um, air travel. And Hoover was a part of building regulations um, for all of that, including the standardization of things that we use every day, like screws and nails, tires on your car. Some air traffic people I understand and pilots don't really like Hoover because some of his regulations still continue on today, Um, he established what we would come to recognize as the first national uh, transportation boards um, and really pushed for these huge infrastructure projects that became the foundation of recovery for the Great Depression. And one of those things was the Hoover Dam. And as Secretary of Commerce, he had gone in and kind of oversaw how they were going to split up water rights, um, how they were going to hire companies to do this, the budgets that went to Congress. And, of course, left. The Hoover Dam building was actually dedicated by FDR later. But Hoover did stop at the Hoover Dam during construction and gave a great speech. And we have a picture of him out there. And no infrastructure project had ever been named after a president before. So FDR, who did not like Hoover, revoked the name. And then when Hoover and Truman became friends later, they rededicated it officially as the Hoover Dam. And this is I I went to the Hoover Dam a few years ago. It's amazing if you guys can go, go, Um, just attracts tons of visitors. It's this huge engineering marvel that Hoover is so proud to have his name on. But even when he was running for office, they called him the great engineer. And we have a button on display that says engineers for Hoover and engineering civics groups would send him letters as an engineer. This is how we think you should fix the government. And they wanted him to run the government like an engineer, And so all of these things we can bring back to students, which was awesome. So that was kind of like that. And once I dug into the archives and discovered, you know, we had the engineering notebooks from the six companies that built the Hoover Dam, we could share this with the students. And we have the Bureau of Reclamation documents about the Hoover Dam at the archives in Denver, which I had digitized just so we could bring them to students. And so we can talk about, why we build dams and how they function, but also, you know, all of the political parts behind it and how it interacted with government and why we were able to get the dam. So it's really cool. It is. It is cool wicked cool.
1: It's not just really cool. I think it's really, really wicked cool. And I, I've been uh, to a several dams, including the Hoover Dam, and I would echo, um, you know, your your sort of shout out. That if you get a chance to go see um, one of these big dams, there's several of them uh, across the country, that it, it's worth the trip as a family. You know, certainly if you're in proximity and school groups, you know, have the opportunity to get to go. That's a wonderful thing. But um, you know, even being able to sort of dig into to videos and documentaries. There's a lot of information and materials that are out there about the engineering and the marvels that these things are. are, They're really something else uh, to behold, especially if you get to go down inside them and just that experience So, Christine, given the fact that there is all this great information that's out there, you know, I'm assuming, and please correct me if I'm wrong, that part of your your role in this work is to sort of help synthesize and figure out the components that make the most sense, or how you and and the the Hoover Library and the Archive work together to say, here's the, the best and brightest of the information, to be able to disseminate that back out in a meaningful way. One of the things that I hear from teachers all the time is, There's all these great resources, but I don't even know which ones are any good or how would I use them? And so how is it that you interact or you interface with that?
2: So for one
1: piece of um,
2: the work that we do, the STEM Council every year selects a list of anywhere from 10 to 15 high quality programs that have gone through a vetting process from the STEM Council For example, right now we're collecting applications from Iowa educators to implement one of 12 programs that we selected from 109 proposals of nationwide and state companies for STEM programs. So we then rank them on a rubric of effectiveness of showing student interest and achievement in school and out of school that they can affect students of different grade levels. So we've built a pretty robust system of how we vet programs. So then when we send these programs to educators, if they can apply to receive these for free from the state, then they know that here's 12 programs, maybe only three or four of those are for my grade level. And then it really helps them to whittle down programs that are effective. In partnerships with um, the museum, for example, we've looked at the robotics programs have been a really key piece in our part of the state, and that's been something that's been nicely um, scaled to have an impact and show an effect. And so we try to either do a nice vetting of programs through rubrics or to look at what are some established programs already in our area that then we can connect to through some of our programming. So that would include then, say, for the robotics programs involving those students in you know STEM days at the library or Partnerships that we do on STEM festivals, so we we try as best we can to help whittle that down for teachers. And I think right now more than ever, teachers are bombarded by online resources and everybody wanting to promote. But you, as you may know, if you click on some of those resources, then you have to dig for like two hours to find with actual resources. You know, some of these online bulletin boards are great to have a lot of resources, but when you actually click on them, they don't really go too much. So we've tried to then filter those, but also if we have some established partners, so whether that would be um, the Science Center of Iowa, the Iowa Children's Museum, the Hoover Library, ones that we know are established partners and we're familiar with their program then we help to
1: promote those programs that we know that we've already seen them in action. So both of you mentioned robotics. And so I want to dig into that just a little bit. For folks that have listened to, uh, to this program, we've had many, many conversations over the last, oh, I don't know, 18 months or so that the program has been running and robotics comes up frequently. And so, you know, uh, two, two questions. The first one, and either one of you, please feel free to jump in. So just so that folks have a set of context. So in Ohio, which robotics programs, because there are numerous large national or global robotics programs that exist in the world. So is there a particular program, robotics program that are, is, is um, more prevalent in Iowa? I guess I'll start with that. Is it first? Is it best? Is it best? <laughs> is it something else?
0: It's first Lego League here. Um, so we have the FL for the younger kids, um, first tech challenge for uh, it's middle school high and school. high school kids do FTC too. Yeah. And then we have the first robotics challenge, the FRC um, students as well.
1: So the next question that folks are going to want to know is, okay, so how or why are robotics at the Hoover Library? So explain that Because I think it's wonderful, actually, um, that, that the library is involved in that, but help folks understand sort of the where or the, or the why of robotics specifically um, as part of your work.
0: So robotics is actually kind of a big deal here. Lots of people show up. They love it. It's awesome. But one of the things we've watched over the last several years is that funding for the teams has come back, um, has scaled back a lot from the districts. And a lot of companies who were formerly sponsoring robotics teams have cut down the amount of money that they were giving. And so, like, there's a few components here. You know, we're a mission-driven organization. And part of that, a part of Hoover's legacy is the belief in children and the ability to give them opportunities so that they can excel. And Hoover was an engineer. His family has gone on to be really successful engineers in Colorado, some of them still are. And so we saw this as an opportunity to promote children in our community with something that that Hoover loved. So the Hoover family got behind us and made it so that we could have a grant program for FTC and FRC teams in the area. And we set up like a grant process where they have to submit an application they come in, they give us a presentation about what their team is doing, how they're involved in the community. It's very similar to a judge interview that they have at a competition. We have a little grant review board. We all read their applications. And the secret that they don't know is that everybody's going to get money. So, And sometimes I've gone back to the Hoover family and said, can we have a little bit more? We have more teams than we thought. And The greatest thing about it, there's a few things that are great, but we create opportunity for the students to come volunteer and mentor younger students in a STEM atmosphere at the museum. So they come and volunteer at our STEM days. We have Hoover hometown days where thousands of people from all over the state come. We have fireworks and a parade for Hoover and all this great stuff in West Branch. And we open up the floor in the museum for the robotics teams where younger kids can come in and drive the robots, and the teams can recruit students to come in, but we rent festival space all around the area and we give it to the robotics teams. So I go sit with them, but they let the kids drive them, they bring out their posters, they talk to the kids and engage with them. And we sort of talk about the museum, but not really. It's really for the robotics kids and the little kids who love it, but then they go to the FTC and FRC judge meetings and they get to say, we've done these many hours in community service with the Hoover Library. And we have watched teams that have come to us with recycled parts, no sponsors, and we give them money and they come back the next year and they're like, well, now we have five sponsors. We got second place, <laughs> you know. And then from that point, we give them a small grant, but we put them in more of a mentorship role so that they are helping the you know, the next group of upcoming teams. And it's been awesome. And the Hoover family comes in, and they're like, show us your engineering notebooks. The kids lay them out and they get excited. So this is more of like, Usually we need volunteers and we need people to come, you know, give to the Hoover Library. But this is a rare instance where we get to give back to our community and to the kids. And they come and they want to be interns with us later. It has just been so cool. And they come in and they're like, here, let us fix this for you. Oh, your 3D printer isn't working? We can do that. (laughs) And they borrow stuff from us. We have a lot of really high-tech We have like Oculus Rifts with gaming computers and stuff. And they take those to go do demos with little kids. So it's this really great relationship we've built with the robotics teams in town. And we like really love having them and having that relationship. I, I
1: I totally understand that because we feel the same way. Um, and at the past Innovation Lab, we actually have an FRC competition arena permanently installed in the building. <laughs> so I totally understand how you love it. And all these kids come and these magical things happen because they've been exposed and they learn from each other. And it's I, I, I totally understand because it's magical. It's one of my all-time favorite things that we do.
0: Yeah, well, we had kids. Um, Smithsonian had this big Minecraft event a few years ago where everybody did these Minecraft things. So we set up all of our gaming computers and our big, we have a, a big touchscreen smart board, all with different Minecraft stations. And the robotics kids came out and played Minecraft all day with kids. <laughs> And everybody had so much fun, but then we learned that you could build the Minecraft worlds and we could 3D print them too. So we started doing that like on the, sea, you know, on the fly, setting up the 3D printers. So it's just been super cool to have like those younger groups that come in and they inspire us to challenge us to use our equipment differently and provide new programming for kids.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's wonderful. So Christine, I want to circle back around to you and and the work that you're doing. So these amazing things are happening at the Hoover Library and your work is is bigger than that in the sense that, that it's broad and it's statewide. But how do you leverage or how do you help others understand how to take advantage of or leverage the experience, whether it be robotics or anything else that's happening at the Hoover Library specifically, and then turn that into more of an everyday opportunity back in your own classroom or in your own community. Because that's one of those those big, um, it's not a disconnect, but it is one of the things that oftentimes I hear teachers or communities that don't necessarily have a Hoover Library. They don't have a science center. They don't have a, a whatever that, that big community based um, space is trying to figure out, well, then how could we do some of those similar things? And in your work, um, I would assume that you get to you, you help folks figure that out. So what does that look like from the perspective of your role in terms of how to help folks leverage those things?
2: Yeah, and th- what you pointed out about not every community having the same resources or same access as, you know Iowa has a lot of very rural areas that are very disconnected from bigger businesses or they might just have a few businesses in their area that really focus on a certain career path that students might not be exposed to anything else so Iowa saw that as a big barrier probably 5 years ago now maybe a few less that to get access to these students without having it be that there has to be transportation for them to get to something like a Hoover library each time they want to interact with a community organization, and developed a work-based learning clearinghouse that's for K-12 students. And so what that is, is an online um, partnership and project portal for K-12 teachers, public and private, to connect with businesses from across the state. For example, Elizabeth could post a project or a partnership that she would like to do on this clearinghouse and an educator four hours away from her in southwest Iowa could then connect to this project and build a partnership remotely. So students could work on the project. They could reach out to Elizabeth as a mentor or a guide as they navigate through the project or even set up you know virtual meetings that way. So then students can work with local Iowa businesses and organizations on different projects and maybe even team up with other schools and other parts of the state to work on a project together with a business without having to physically go there. And now with the time of covid We're really seeing that even if you could go to a business and miles away, that you really can't physically do that. And so I think it's opened a lot more possibilities of educators being interested in how can we connect to um, businesses and organizations virtually that maybe before it just seemed like something that wasn't right at the forefront, but now that it's becoming so much more natural for everybody, we're really hoping that we see an increase in usage of this clearinghouse so that then it can build more partnerships for more students. And we always want to see that local connection because one of Iowa's biggest exports is not necessarily corn, but some of our talent because, you know, people are moving out of the state and being drawn to some of those other fancier places. But now with COVID, we've seen that some of those states that lost population are maybe going to get some of it back because people can work remotely. Um, So it is a unique time and a unique opportunity to get connected to students that might not have had access before.
1: And how fortuitous that so much work had gone in prior to this pandemic to build that network, to build that clearinghouse so that it's it was there. That's outstanding. Yeah. And And to your point earlier
2: about filtering resources, it's nice that it's actually staffed by the Department of Education here in the state. So there is someone who's continuously updating it, supporting teachers and the work, aligning the projects to standards so that it does have that nice filtering, that it's not just a website with a link that might have been relevant for a week or two or a month. And then now all of a sudden it's really dated. So there is support for that to be a continuously useful resource.
1: That's fabulous. And I would encourage um, folks that are listening, even if you're not from Iowa, to go take a look at that and see if there's something that you can learn from that and bring back to your own state. Because not every state, not all the folks that we talk to, uh, have um, such a formalized mechanism to make it easy. So that's fabulous. Um, that's a giant win for the state of Iowa. Bravo. Um, I want to, uh, to circle back around um, and talk about one of the projects um, that Elizabeth shared Shared with me um, about uh, the, the, this happening with Hoover, like, that's really curious, and it's another one of these that most folks wouldn't necessarily. And as soon as I saw this, I was like, Oh my gosh, I need to know more about what is happening with Raspberry Pis and Hoover TV um, at the Hoover Library, because for those folks that do a lot of STEM work, well, Raspberry Pis have become, you know, fairly ubiquitous in terms of students getting a lot of experience. And so I think folks are going to be really wondering. So what is it that you're doing with this thing? So Elizabeth, what are you doing with this thing? <laughs>
0: Sure. Um, so Hoover Hoover was on the first television broadcast in 1928. And it's not like television like we think, like there wasn't a show. Um, it was probably more like Skype or like FaceTime, something like that. So Hoover was on one side of a television with a phone. Someone was on the other side. And we have this technology on display at the Hoover Library, kind of in a dusty hidden corner. But how cool is that, right? So I started talking to students about it and we decided we wanted to recreate a television broadcast for kids to use when they come for STEM days. So we actually have a local fab lab here and we worked with the fab lab to build an exact replica of what was on the end of this technology, this weird black and white box. And so we made two of them and we started working on getting like screens and microphones and cameras and stuff like that. And then we started having a debate about how we were going to make these things talk to one another. And so we were trying to do it through like, we shouldn't be doing Skype on the floor of the museum, we needed to control the environment a little bit more. Um, And even talked like had to work on deactivating hard software on the computers so we could make them talk. And then I had my robotics kids in, and they're like, we can do this with raspberry pies. And I was like, really, can we? And they're like, yeah, let us do it. So we bought some raspberry pies and we are were it so cool. And we had a, one of the teachers from one of the local high schools um, stepped in and she was helping them. She's one of the robotics teachers. And actually, we had left off right when we shut down with that. I went into the office the other day. I haven't been in since March. And the Raspberry Pis and the TV broadcast was all over the floor in my office. (laughs) I was like, we're going to get back to that. So I actually grabbed the Raspberry Pis so the kids can start working on them again because they want to get back to it. But yeah, we're letting them do all the programming for the television broadcast that'll go into the exhibits. And that is
1: perfect STEM education, right? The kids coming up with it, finding the solution and then deploying the ideas. I love that. That is so wonderful. Um, I always like to close this program by... Thinking about the folks that have have spent you know a half hour or so with us, listening to what are always amazing stories or opportunities or these these triumphs of the things that we are doing, sitting back and wherever they happen to be in the world, wondering about well you know how could I you know do X Y or Z that I just just heard folks talking about. So Christine, I w- I want to start with you. You know, as, as you sort of traverse and help folks um, in Iowa um, bring STEM, high-caliber high STEM, and other and, 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 uh, learning opportunities directly into their classroom, for the folks that are tentative, you know, wh- what piece of advice do you have for teachers or communities that are not real comfortable yet but really want to go down that road?
2: Well, for teachers, kind of starting at the classroom level, for teachers that might be hesitant, my biggest suggestion would be is start with something that is maybe just a unit or transforming two or three of your lessons to be a hands-on component. And then once you really see that that initial legwork that you had to put in of materials or curriculum changes, see students get excited and want more, and that buy-in of when I used to teach engineering classes to high school students, that buy-in of them being engaged and how it eased your classroom management was really like all that I needed to be like, hey, everybody wants to do it. I'll put in all the work because I'm not putting in work of getting trying to motivate students every minute of every lesson. So that piece. Then I think once you do see that, then become a bigger advocate for your grade level. So if you're teaching fourth grade or you have multiple math teachers at your school, advocate at that scale, and then going to a building and then trying to go to more of a district level and kind of expanding out from there. I think it's harder if you feel like you're new to this to just think of taking on the whole kitchen sink at once. If you're at the district level, maybe thinking about changes again, maybe picking a few priority areas and starting there. And what we've seen from businesses that are interested in getting engaged in STEM, whether that be setting up high school internship or apprenticeship programs, doing more of their volunteers, getting into schools, start with something, again, that's at a scale that's manageable. So for example, we have a company here in Iowa, John Deere, that they're launching a high school software apprenticeship program this summer. And they're working with one high school that is going to do five apprenticeships. And then they're going to expand from there and kind of pilot it with one area. Or another business we have that they really value their volu- their employees volunteering in schools. And so they have tried to create like a network within their employee resource groups about different opportunities for their employees to get engaged. And now with things being virtual, it's that much easier. So I think really setting your scale and then expanding from there and then bringing in more partners. I'm sure Elizabeth, with what she's done from the library, it wasn't like, let's reach out to everybody that we know. To do all these things, you start with maybe more of a local group of students or a local robotics team to get started, see success, and then it becomes easier to manage as you grow
1: larger. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Thank you for that, Christine. So Elizabeth, same question to you. You know, I'm I'm from another state. I don't have a presidential library uh, in my ecosystem, but I want to be able to tap into some of the same sorts of things that, that that I heard you talking about today. How would I go about such things?
0: So one of the things I think teachers should think about is how they can in- integrate social science with the other things. I know there's a lot of standards going on. And the great thing about using history or even civics is that just like science, we're inquiry-based, we're working on literacy because we're reading, we're interpreting photographs. And then we're able to apply that to what we're doing in science. So like in my Hoover Dam section, we actually build dams and then flood them and test them to see how they work. And it goes both ways. Like I work with National History Day and I get fifth graders who have never done a history project before. So I ask them, do you guys know what the scientific method is? And they'll start spitting it out to me because they've worked on it before. We're gonna do the same thing. You guys have to write a thesis statement, right? Right. Most of your teachers want you to start there, right? Right. Well, it's not a thesis statement because we haven't researched and tested what you're saying. So now it's a hypothesis. And now we're going to do research. We're going to see what we find. We're going to have conclusions. And we're going to actually have to change our hypothesis to be a thesis statement because now we know what we, you know, our question, have an answer to it. And my kids respond to it so well. And I like that's just the beauty of having the new NCSS and NGSS standards be inquiry based. So it doesn't matter where you are in the country, if you can frame your units in a way that it's a question that can come across from history and English and science, you can blend all of your subjects together and have this amazing outcome because like christine said when the kids can engage with it learning about a dam is way cooler if you can build it and flood it it just is (laughs) so yeah i mean i think that's the big thing and definitely you know sign up for some stuff on twitter like we tweet out a lot about programs going on we just did a hoover dam program with the Presidential Primary Source Project. So you'll find these things in places that are unexpected, but give them a chance.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Great advice. I want to thank both of you ladies uh, for spending uh, time um, with us today and for tra- sharing the work that you're doing, um, the great work that you're both doing. Um, it's very, very exciting. And we will direct listeners um, to the resources um, and back to you. Um, so thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you, it was great talking to you both. Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.